Laura and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a GP Fellow, and today I welcome Dr. Bronwyn Rosie to the podcast. Today we are discussing child abuse in a New Zealand context, how to address this issue in primary care. Bronwyn is a general paediatrician and MedSac trained doctor at Starship Children's Health here in Auckland. Bronwyn has worked within the specialist team at Te Pua Ruruhau at ADHB since 2016. This service provides care for children and young people where there are concerns about abuse and neglect. Bronwyn is involved in ongoing research and education and is a member of the Child Protection Special Interest Group at the Paediatric Society of New Zealand. Welcome to the podcast, Bronwyn. Hi there, thanks for having me. So Bronwyn, child abuse is physical, emotional or sexual harming of a child or young person. We know that child abuse is common in New Zealand. So what are the numbers? How much of a problem do we have? Yes, it's a really good question, Louise. And unfortunately, the numbers are not good. In terms of OECD countries, uh, we uh, rank right up there. We're probably third or fourth uh, in terms of the frequency of uh, child abuse. When you uh, turn that into real numbers, uh, in terms of how often Uranga Tamariki is contacted each year, I think people are often really uh, blown away by the number of reports of concern they receive on an annual basis. It's pretty similar year to year, give or take a bit, uh, and they would deal with probably about 80,000 uh, reports of concern a year uh, where that's concern about a child in some way, shape or form. If you add on the number of times that the police attend for family violence incidents where children are present, it goes up to about 120 to 140,000 times a year in New Zealand. It's important to conceptualise exposing a child to family violence as a form of abuse. Uh, We know that it's actually one of the most damaging forms of abuse in terms of a child's uh, development and and, uh, sense of self. Uh, So we have a really big problem. About one child every six weeks dies uh, from child abuse in this country, and that statistic is essentially unchanged over the last 15 to 20 years. Is there a number, so in my head, I've got a sexual difference, so one in three girls and one in nine boys. What am I thinking of there? What does that translate to? So if you talk about sexual abuse, uh, those numbers are roughly correct. Of course, it's a really hard area to study. You know, it's not like you can just do a, a, a normal incident study that you might do in other areas. So the best way we have got of these numbers are anonymous population surveys. One of the best of those are the Health 2000 series, uh, which many of you will be familiar with. And questions specific to abuse were included uh, a number of years ago to about sort of mid-2000s. And at that time, about about one in three girls and about one in 10 boys uh, had had some form of unwanted sexual contact in the past year. And of those, uh, more than half rated that experience as awful or very awful. Uh, so yeah, it's a common it's a common thing for our young people uh, to have experienced. Thank you for clarifying that. So we're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, and stress has been huge for our families. 
do we know if that is impacted on young people in the form of abuse? It's, it's quite a complex question. Uh, prior, when the pandemic was just kicking off in the early days, both uh, we and our colleagues internationally expected there to be a huge spike in child abuse uh, cases, uh, you know, related to people's distress and stress and being stuck at home uh, in, in um, often less than ideal circumstances. Uh, and in fact, that's not exactly what we saw. Uh, and in some instances, numbers fell. And part of that, we think, is uh, due to the fact that having other people at home can sometimes be protective. Uh, so having grandmas or aunties or other people isolating with you can be protective in terms of they see what's going on, but also just that it uh, can be more hands to look after children. So that's one thing we think has contributed. And perhaps uh, on the other side, we think that there's been less reporting so families are more isolated. They're not seeing the professionals that they might otherwise see, teachers, uh, community nurses, uh, not visiting general practitioners in person like they, like they might otherwise do. And so we think also there's a, a reporting gap as well. But what I can say is that the cases that we have seen uh, tend to have been quite severe. So we're getting fewer cases, but more bad cases. So tell us about the populations that are more at risk. So um, just by virtue of being a child, you're at risk. So it's important to realise that children are inherently vulnerable. It's also really important to realise that this is a problem that spans, uh, spans society, spans socioeconomic groups, it spans uh, ethnic groups, it spans religious groups. So just because a family uh, comes from a good area, uh, don't think uh, that you know, abuse is not a possibility because that's unfortunately not the way it works. That said, the factors that make families vulnerable in other spheres are also uh, the factors that increase uh, risk for child abuse. So that's, uh, and some in particular that are important are uh, family violence. So uh, if, if violence to one family member is occurring, uh, a child is also more likely to have violence inflicted against them. Uh, drug and alcohol misuse uh, is another really strong predictor. Uh, mental health difficulties are also a strong predictor, and unfortunately, and poverty. Another really strong predictor is that the parents themselves were involved with welfare services as children too. And when you think about it, that makes good sense. If you haven't had a good uh, parenting role model when you've been brought up, you don't have a uh, you don't have a template to use with your own parenting, and so that's part of why we see this as a multi generational problem. In terms of the particular children that are most at risk, uh, they're young children. So children uh, less than two, and specifically children less than one, uh, they're the ones who are most likely uh, to be abused and to be significantly abused. Other factors that increase your risk are if you suffer from a chronic disease or if you were born prematurely. Uh, th again, things that increase a child's inherent vulnerability also tend to increase their likelihood of, of experiencing abuse. So given that this is such a problem, should we be screening or thinking about it at every encounter with a child? Yes, is the short answer to that. It's important to realise that there's no validated screening tool for abuse per se. Uh, it would certainly make my job a lot easier if there were, but uh, unfortunately there's not. 
what I tend to do is uh, add it on to those uh, at the bottom of most differential lists, much like those uh, great mimics that we learned about in med school. So, you know, along with TB and syphilis and the other things that can look like anything, child abuse should kind of sit there along with that. So any injury can be abusively inflicted. Now, most aren't, clearly. Most, you know, occur just the way that you're told they occur. But uh, it's, it's important to at least entertain that possibility, because if you don't, you won't recognise it. And one of the things that most increases the risk for an abusive injury not being recognised is if you look the same as the, as the family who sits across from you. So if you're, um, you know, if you're a middle class family, uh, a practitioner, and, you look, and that's who you're looking across at, that's where you'll miss a, a, a case of child abuse. So it's being aware of your own, um, you know, all of us come with biases that we aren't necessarily aware of, uh, and it's just uh, entertaining that possibility. That's a brilliant point, and I think we do have to look beyond beyond our biases and be aware of our biases too, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So you've said there's no particular screening tool. What clues should we be looking for? And along with clues, you know, we love to exclude red flags or yep. know what the red flags are. So give us some clues and what are our red flags? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and so these are things that I would always encourage you to do when you're, when you're thinking about an injury in a child, particularly a young child who's unable to speak for themselves. So first of all, think about what the injury is that you've got in front of you. And then with, whether the mechanism that you've been told about fits that injury. So for instance, if you've got a child who supposedly has sustained a severe head injury from toppling backwards from a sitting position, that's really unlikely. Uh, so match together or do a logic test between what you see in front of you and what you've been told about how the injury occurred. The second really important thing is to think about the child's developmental capacity uh, and whether that fits the injury. So for instance, if you're, child, if you're told you know, that a six-month-old uh, fell off the top bunk because they got up there by themselves, clearly that's really, really unlikely. So, uh, or, or, you know, or, they, or the six-month-old climbed the stairs and fell down the stairs. Think about whether the developmental capacity of the child you see in front of you fits with how the injury is supposed to have occurred. And parents are often, uh, you know, we've all got an iPhone now, uh, and parents are often really happy and proud to show you what their child can do. So often they will have videos showing where their child is at in terms of their development, which um, I often find quite helpful. Other things that would concern me about a history is if it's vague or changing. So if, uh, if I'm getting the history uh, on different occasions, if how the injury is, is said to have occurred changes from one time to the next, then that's a, a bit of a, a concern for me. I would really encourage you, though, to, to take that last statement and think about who's giving the history, because that sometimes can explain why it's vague. If it's, you know, if the person who's brought the child to see you wasn't actually there, and actually, and, in the, and the history is about fifth pan by the time it reaches you, uh, that can be a reason for it being vague. Or if you don't share a first language with the person who's giving the history, that's another reason why what you're being told can seem vague. So um, although vague and changing is concerning, you know, take that with, uh, view that in a nuanced fashion, I guess. Another thing that's concerning to me is if there's an unexplained delay in presentation. And now, so for instance, you know, a child with a femur fracture who hasn't been brought to hospital for several days, that would concern me. 
But again, it's important to explore that delay. On a number of occasions where I've been called because a child is said to uh, have had a delayed presentation, often it's not. Often the family has taken the family to uh, an after-hours clinic or um, uh, somebody else took the child to medical care. Or sometimes it's a reason like they don't have a car and they need to wait for someone to come home to transport them. So again, explore what constitutes that delay. Don't just take, uh, there's a delay full stop, therefore it's worrying. In terms of red flags, again, I wish there were uh, absolute red flags, but you always need to kind of, uh, as my clinical director says, engage your brain when you're being given, uh, given a, a history. That said, there are some things that would concern me if I did see them. Uh, And that would include uh, bruising on an immobile infant. And I mean any bruising, because if you can't roll, uh, you can't sit, you can't crawl, you're not going to encounter things uh, where you bruise yourself. So something or someone has to have bruised you. Uh, Now, there might be, sometimes there's really great explanations. Uh, I'll never forget the child who I saw with facial bruising uh, after their mobile above their cot fell off and smacked them in the face. So there can be really valid explanations, but if you see any bruises on a child who can't move, you need to know or explore how they got there. Bruising in unusual places concerns me. So the places that I would consider unusual for accidental bruising are bruising around the ears, bruising around the genitalia, bruising on the neck, on the back or abdomen, so on the torso. Those are unusual places for accidental bruising. Accidental bruising is usually on bony prominences and it's usually on the front of the body. Now, that, again, that doesn't mean that bruising in those other places is always abusively uh, acquired, but it means that you should at least think about it, think, think about what the explanation you're offered as to how that bruising happened. Patterned bruising is also concerning. Um, very often, uh, if children are hit with something, Uh, you will see a negative imprint of that object. And if it looks like a hand, it probably is a hand. Burns in young children uh, that are not the typical uh, splash pattern can be concerning. So uh, uh, although we don't, you know, burns in children are are never great, but if a child's pulled uh, a kettle or something down onto them, you'll see a classic pattern of burning onto the surfaces from the top downwards uh, and run marks on their arms, other things like that. Um, So if you've got a pattern that is not that, I would want to know how that occurred uh, to consider it carefully. And then multiple bruises uh, is uh, another thing that should uh, be carefully considered. And again, in the paper that I've included at the end uh, is a definition of what constitutes multiple bruises. Uh, It goes up with the child's age uh, and it sort of peaks in those uh, years where toddlers crash around the place. Uh, or, or young children are, you know, climbing, climbing things and falling off things. But uh, in general, the median number of bruises, even in an active child, is kind of uh, less than 10, and the 95 percentiles in the teens. So if you see a child that's coming in to see you with uh, 20, 30, 40 bruises, uh, that's well outside the realms of what would be acquired just in the course of normal life, and you'd want to be thinking about how those bruises occurred. The other case I would particularly uh, draw your attention to uh, is that of little babies who appear non-specifically unwell. So sometimes children, babies who have a serious head injury uh, can just present as a non-specifically unwell unwell child. Uh, So um, this is children with an inflicted head injury that I'm talking about. They might present vomiting, they might present uh, as irritable, uh, not feeding well. 
or uh, more unwell than that, uh, looking like a septic child. And so the possibility of an inflicted head injury should always be added on to the bottom of the differential when you just see a non-specifically unwell infant. Now, hopefully, in most cases, uh, that's where it will stay, on the bottom of the differential, but it's something that should cross your mind. Gosh, that's a brilliant point. Thank you. Thank you for that. So we have a child in our rooms with an injury where the story and the injury don't match up and we've got concern. What do we do now? Yeah, again, I wish I had a magic answer that covered all situations. So the first thing is to consider uh, the safety of both uh, yourself, but also the child and the caregiver that sit in front of you. How is it that they came to be in your rooms? And, and if you send them out from your rooms, are they going to be safe or not? And what I'm referring to here is there's someone at home, is there violence at home that they're returning to? If they leave your rooms, might they just vanish, in, vanish into the ether never, never to be seen again? So initial uh, safety right then and there should be the first thing that you consider. Secondly, it's generally important to be upfront with, uh, with a family. I've had a number of instances where a primary practitioner or another one of my colleagues at the hospital has been concerned that an injury has been abusively acquired, sent the child into hospital with a kind of a bit of a, um, a white lie story to get them through the door. And it never goes well. It just never goes well. Family, you know, feels tricked. Uh, you've undermined their trust before they're even turned up. Uh, and so in general, honesty is the best policy. So, um, so I address the elephant in the room and the kind of language that I would use is something along the lines of, um, thanks for coming to see me today. Johnny has a, a significant injury of their safe thigh. Whenever I meet a child who has this kind of injury, uh, it's an unusual injury and I would always uh, be concerned that, uh, that someone may have, uh, may have, have hurt uh, Johnny. And usually I will use words that are not too dissimilar to that. Um, then generally when I say whenever I tend to fall back on policy, uh, whenever I meet a child who has an injury such as this, there are a few things that I am, am bound to do. Uh, and one of these would be talk to my colleagues at the hospital and, and um, I'm going to ask you to go into the hospital and, and meet them. Now, whether you are actually as overt of that as that with a family depends on a number of things. It depends whether you think the family is then actually going to turn up, if they're going to go to the hospital or not. Because it's important not to presume the circumstances that led them to be in your room. It may be that you're the safe person that this, uh, that this person has, has arrived to, to protect their child, and they might be really cooperative with you, or they might be really offended. Well, they might actually know nothing about this injury at all. They, might, they truly might know nothing about it. So it's really important to not be judgmental. It's really important to try and continue to be compassionate. Uh, and it's really important to not make assumptions. Uh, but it's generally, it's generally being upfront that you're concerned about a child works better than trying to trick someone into, into hospital. Yeah. So I suppose the urgency of that uh, referral and admission would depend on the degree of the injury. So what That's would right. necessitate a same-day type admission? So um, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, whether a child needs to come to hospital at all uh, is first determined by the severity of the injury that they have. 
Often if a child has an injury that doesn't require hospital management, they don't need to come to the hospital. And in fact, the, the, pe- the people that you're going to be contacting are child welfare services, Oranga Tamariki, uh, and letting them know. Before I ring Oranga Tamariki, I usually try and collect a, a little bit of collateral information. Um, what is this family's living circumstances? Who else is at home? In particular, what other children live in that home? Because if a child in front of you faces risk, most likely other children in that family face risk too. So I want to know how many kids there are, what their ages are, uh, and you know what other adults are in the house. Because that's going to be really important information for you to be able to relay to Oranga Tamariki. If I had concerns about a child having been injured, it's important that you do something that day. You and I and other health professionals are not uh, the people that make those ongoing child welfare decisions. That is, for better or for worse, that's Oranga Tamariki and other, and our, and other uh, colleagues. But they can't make those decisions if we don't provide them the information. Uh, they won't even be aware about it. Uh, and so it's important that you, if you uh, have a child who's injured, that you contact them or that you are concerned as injured, that you contact them that same day. Now, in terms of sending children into the hospital, if a child has an injury that warrants uh, hospital management and you are concerned that the injury has been inflicted abusively, it's, it's obviously important that you let the hospital team know right away. And so that to how that child gets to hospital uh, can be arranged. And importantly, that the hospital team is aware if that child doesn't turn up so that they can start to um, you know, do things to try and look and find that child. I'll come back again to the babies who are non-specifically unwell. Clearly, those are children who need to come to the emergency department straight away. I'd be relatively upfront with the family. I'm concerned that your child is quite unwell. They need to have a number of investigations to work out the reasons for this. Uh, and so I'm going to arrange for you to go in an ambulance or to go in a family member's car, to, obviously depending on the degree of uh, severity that, uh, of how unwell that child is. So I would encourage you to do something the same day. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. So we've talked once before about neglect, and I wonder risk factors for neglect in a child who's been abused. Do they always go hand in hand? That's a really good question. Yeah, so neglect is the most common form of abuse. That's worldwide, and and we think in New Zealand too. So we think the rate of children who have been neglected over their lifetime is about 10%, give or take, 10 to 15%, uh, depends on what study you look at. Now, if you have been neglected, you are at greater risk of, of also being abused. Neglect is important uh, to be considered as a potential canary in the mine, I guess. That said, uh, there are um, children who are neglected but not abused. So the two don't necessarily go uh, hand in hand. There are also some children, again, particularly young babies, where uh, the instance of abuse comes out of the blue. And so this might be a child who's been well cared for uh, and there's no uh, instances of neglect or people have concerns about neglect, but there's a particular instance or occurrence that then results in that child being injured. Uh, And again, I'm talking about babies with head injuries. What we know is the most common precipitant for a child, uh, an infant to be injured, uh, is that they're crying. And so it's 
Often something that occurs in a situation of frustration and distress with someone who can't soothe a crying baby. And so those and those children might otherwise have been well cared for. So they 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 overlap, but they can also occur independently. Yeah. That's an excellent point too. And I suppose we do hear a lot and see a lot of crying babies. So, you know, actually addressing that in good time yeah. is important because we want to prevent that cycle and and that abuse episode because often it only takes one episode to destroy right. a child's life. That's right, that's right. And I think again, this this is uh stereotypically but not always the case, is if a primary caregiver is a mother and it's her who's interacting with that child uh, and it's with her that the, the child has the primary attachment. She's also going to be the adult who's best able to soothe that child. Uh, And if for whatever reason uh, the child has then been cared for by another adult, they're not necessarily going to be able to soothe or help that infant regulate to the same degree as as the primary caregiver. And that can be really distressing for the caregiver and result in lots of frustration. So the stereotypical uh, scenario that we see is someone being injured uh, is, is, is a child being injured by someone who is not their primary caregiver. It's not always the case, of course, but, but it's certainly a, a common scenario. So dealing with abuse and neglect in the community can be particularly stressful for the primary care team. So if someone's listening to this podcast and they are triggered or have dealt with, an, with a case of abuse or neglect, what do you suggest they do to deal with those emotions and, and feelings that come up? You're right, it's a really hard area to practice in. And so um, I absolutely recognise that it can be particularly distressing uh, for the primary care team, particularly if they've known the family uh, in other contexts. It can be very hard to come to terms with. Uh, and so I would encourage them uh, to, to talk to talk to someone, to kind of uh, recognise those emotions, recognise that it is an, an inherently distressing situation and to find someone to talk to about that. Uh, In my own situation, um, I have formal supervision to discuss exactly this kind of issue, but uh, that's not always possible. And so uh, prior to to me having um, a formal supervisor, uh, I would uh, address this with with colleagues and we would support each other through it. So uh, a supportive colleague is is a fantastic place to start. Another thing that is really important to recognize is that um, is to accept what you can do. Many of the families or situations where uh, where abuse happens, uh, we can't always fix all of it. Uh, and so it's accepting that uh, you can only you can only help where you can. As, as we've already mentioned, most situations are not inherently bad people, uh, the people who abuse their children. They often People with um, lots of other stresses going on in their life uh, and um, poorly developed coping skills who in a moment of frustration have, have done something that they will regret for the rest of their lives. It's, that's the most common situation. So I try really hard to maintain a degree of compassion for the, for the, for the person I see sitting across from me. I don't imagine they're kind of stoked with where things have ended up either. And then thirdly, um, the other kind of uh, important thing to address is your own self-care. For me, it's exercise. Uh, for other people, it might be meditation or you might have some other way that you de-stress. 
but it's recognising that this is inherently distressing and difficult and then putting in a self-care plan to, to, to address that. Very wise advice. Thank you, Bronwyn. And to conclude our podcast today, some take-home messages for our listeners, please. So take-home messages are any injury can be inflicted, although most aren't, but particularly consider the diagnosis when the mechanism doesn't fit, the developmental capacity doesn't fit, the history doesn't fit or changes, or there's a delay in presentation. Always worry about bruising on infants, worry about lots of bruises, weird bruises, bruises in weird places. And remember, remember, remember that non-specifically unwell infants can have inflicted head injuries. So just keep that on your diagnosis. And then the last thing is, if you're worried about abuse, consult, 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 consult your colleagues, consult your secondary care colleagues, consult Tamariki. but whatever you do, don't just sit with it. Wonderful. Thank you for your time today, Bronwyn. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you're a New Zealand GP, please claim CPD points and the references that Bronwyn has alluded to will be on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening today.